As soon as we got on the line, I asked Eli Hager, he's a reporter over at ProPublica, to click on this video. When was this video shot? In the early morning hours of February 8th, 2019. There you go, man. This is tape Eli obtained from a source, a woman named Renisha Ferguson. What's that? Watching, you can see exactly what happened when police showed up at Renisha Ferguson's door, jolting her out of bed. Has order to remove the and what were the allegations against her on this February night? Somebody had called saying that um, one of her sons had a bruise and a cut under his eye. The police tell her they've got a court order to remove two of her children from her care. They don't have no order with them, so they ain't coming in here. And you need to tell your officer to stop trying, stop trying to push his way into my house. They did not. Uh, according to our review of records, have any court order, but they said they did. So they were lying. That is our understanding. Because he ain't supposed to. You know that, Mr. Supervisor. Yeah, let's see that order. How does the video end? Well, at one point, the one of the officers kind of pushes his foot into her doorway and then knocks the phone out of her hand. She gets the phone back and... That's when um, we see the video of them saying that if she doesn't cooperate, she'll be arrested. Where's the order to take my kids? Where's the paperwork? I'm not just letting y'all take my kids. I don't care. And this happens after the video ends, but she was afraid of going to jail because she would be no help to her children from jail. So she, at that point, gives in and lets, lets them in and lets them take her children to foster care. Has Renisha ever been found guilty of child abuse of any kind? No. This video is pretty horrifying because it's police coming in the middle of the night to threaten you and then eventually take your kids away. But is this story of what happened here unique? So the fact that it got to this point is a little bit unique, but um, in other ways, it's not unique at all. The idea of ACS caseworkers coming to a home based on a single uncorroborated allegation and attempting to search the home, including going through her refrigerator and cabinets and looking at her uh, sleeping arrangements and all the kind of private areas of her home and, and searching her children's bodies and all of these things that happens uh, according to our investigation at ProPublica. This happens roughly three and a half million times a year across the, the nation. Three and a half million times a year? That's a massive number. Yes, it is, yeah. And they almost never get a warrant for these searches. And in fewer than 5% of, of those three and a half million cases, do they find evidence of child abuse. Today on the show, what an investigation into child welfare agencies uncovered about who can keep law enforcement out of their home and who can't. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. I really want to understand how you could end up with a Child Protective Services agent banging on your door in the middle of the night. So I'm wondering if you can just walk me through the process of an investigation from start to finish so I understand it. Like, how does an agency that's looking out for the welfare of kids, 
How do they know where to go in the first place? So it usually starts with a hotline call. In most states, there is a state central hotline where people can call. Now, this can be mandated reporters like teachers, pediatricians, police officers, or it can be people who are anonymous, which can in some cases include like an ex who is feeling jilted or or even an abuser or a, a neighbor with a grudge. That seems like a real flaw in the system. It does, yeah. But like I said, it starts with a call to the central hotline, and then the hotline does a very minimal vetting of that call. And then in almost all cases, no matter the severity of the allegation, whether it's something having to do with sexual abuse or something very minor having to do with marijuana use or a child missing some days of school, they are always going to send that tip to the Child Protective Services Agency. And under New York law, that agency has to go to the home and evaluate the home environment is the language that they use. It doesn't matter if the allegation has anything to do with the home environment. It could be about missing school, but they're required to do that. So they come to the home um, based on that tip and they try to get inside to look inside the refrigerator to see how much food the family has, to check for uh, window guards on the windows, to look at the sleeping arrangements and make sure that the kids have beds and all of these different things. And I guess in the most generous interpretation of this, this is maybe helping connect the family to the services they need or a food pantry or something like that? Right. The problem with that is that this is not like a building inspector going to every apartment in a building checking for window guards. This is an accusation. This is an investigation of an accusation. And if they find something during that investigation, they will use it against you in court. So it's much more similar to a police search than to a building inspector evaluation. Yeah. Is there an administrative process that an agent has to go through to get access to someone's home? Or is it really that they can just show up and explain who they are and do what they want? So there's a kind of law versus practice issue here. The law says that if the a child protective service agent does not have permission to enter the home, they need to go to court and obtain what's called an entry order, which the law says is equivalent to a search warrant for Fourth Amendment purposes. In other words, the process is the same in terms of proving that you have probable cause to enter the home. You have to demonstrate that to a judge to get a warrant to enter the home. But we found in our investigation that in New York City, of the at least 56,000 home searches that happen every year, the Child Protective Services Agency gets a warrant or what they call an entry order in less than 0.2% of these cases, um, they they get about 94 of these warrants a year out of 56,000 times, at least, that they're entering homes. It's like a drop in the bucket. Right, exactly. So the the way that they explain that is they say that they're getting permission from parents and based on those statistics in basically every single case. Is it informed permission? Like when they come to the door, what are they telling people? Right. That's the question. It's quite hard to believe that, you know, 99% of parents would let government agents into their home to conduct a comprehensive search, which often includes body searches of their children with full, not coerced permission. And that's why we went and interviewed dozens of parents and also caseworkers who worked for the agency or previously worked for the agency and attorneys who have dealt with these cases. And they all told us that 
it's a very coercive situation. Parents are afraid of their children being taken from them. Often the police are present, which it exerts uh, additional pressure on the parent to let them in. And they often use what we found to be manipulative lines like, I don't want to talk about your business out here in the hallway. Let's go inside to talk. And then that's when they get to look around the house or they say, don't make me take this to court. This will only get worse for you. Or if you have nothing to hide, why not let us in? Those types of lines that can exert a lot of pressure on parents and and cause them to give that permission. Yeah. One of the most striking things in your reporting was police talking about child welfare agents and saying how they were shocked at how much access this agency had because they had to go through so many hoops to get into someone's home and they weren't even going to open the fridge. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, police violate the rules all the time. I think we've seen plenty of stories about that, but there are very clear rules when it comes to policing and searching homes. Like if somebody says, no, you may not come in, the police know that they have to go to court and you know provide evidence, demonstrate probable cause, get a warrant from a judge to search the home. And not to do a, like a complete search like these child protective services agencies do. Warrants in, in policing say what specifically they're supposed to be looking for. Otherwise, they can only stick to what's in plain view. They can't just like go through the refrigerator or open every closet. You know, anything they find can be used in court later. That's not how it works in policing. So, yeah, the, the police that we spoke with were kind of dumbfounded by the full access to homes that Child Protective Services has. It's, it's just really not the way things work in, in policing. By the time cops showed up outside Renisha Ferguson's door at 4.30 in the morning, she was incredibly familiar with child welfare agents' invasiveness. Renisha first got on protective services radar when she was living in a shelter. She had been fleeing an abusive partner, and she was also working long hours as a nurse. That meant sometimes she'd leave her 14-year-old daughter in charge of her two young sons. Her kids also missed some school. That was because the shelter they'd moved into wasn't very close to the apartment they'd moved out of. But even after Renisha moved into a home, visits from child welfare agents continued. When an anonymous tipster reported that bruise on her son's eye in February 2019, it triggered another visit. At first, she simply refused the agent's entry. But then they came back with the cops in the middle of the night. And Renisha was fed up. She had been consulting kind of those know your rights websites and educating herself about the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution, which says that there's supposed to be protection for citizens against unreasonable searches and seizures by the government, and that the government, if they want to search a home, needs to get a warrant and demonstrate probable cause. She had just two months previously had one of these searches happen in which the agents had come and looked through her refrigerator and commented on how much food she had. And she had just kind of had enough at that point and, and said no. And I feel like we should just be crystal clear that Renisha denying Child Protective Services entry to her home is totally legal, right? Yes, it is. Federal and state courts have repeatedly found that there is no, like, quote-unquote, social worker exemption to the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. Um, in other words, the Constitution applies even though these aren't police. So she had the right under the Constitution to say, no, if you if you want to enter, you need a warrant. It sounds like a catch-22. Like, it's like you can deny Child Protective Services entry to your home, but that just means things may get worse for you. 
it is a catch-22, though. This is something that we talked about with dozens of parents and also caseworkers who have worked in these situations and attorneys. Um, if, if parents say yes and, and let the investigators in, the investigators can find things that can later be used against them, even if they are minor things like kind of like stuff like alcohol being left out on the table, or they might claim that the parent is hoarding something causing a fire hazard. Anyway, they can find things that might be used against them later in court. So that's not always a good decision to let them in. But then again, if you resist um, as Miss Ferguson did, that can lead to um, the investigators becoming suspicious and, ultimately leading to them using their emergency child removal power, which is what they did. And in her case, they, they removed her children because they thought the children might be in danger because she was resisting. So it it is a catch 22. But then they were placed in foster care where they were hit by the people they were with, right? Correct. Yes. The, the, the very thing that ACS, which is the child protective services agency in New York city says it is protecting children from namely violence and and harm happened to Ms. Ferguson's children while they were in ACS's custody. After the break, how possible is it for child welfare systems to change? One thing that motivates Child Protective Service agents is a fear of the worst-case scenario, a kid being seriously hurt, even killed, because someone didn't do their job. A little home invasion seems like a small price to pay to save a kid's life. But the truth is, severe cases of child abuse are really rare. In New York City, for instance, less than 4% of child welfare investigations end up revealing a safety situation that requires the removal of a child from a home. And that means most of these inspections they're doing are intruding on parents for nothing. And a lot of agents, they see the problem with what they're doing. It was overwhelmingly common for people to have joined that profession for altruistic reasons. Um, They they may have studied social work or sociology in college, and they wanted to help children. But overwhelmingly, in the interviews that I conducted, these workers said, They didn't find that they were helping or saving children the way that they thought they would in that role. They thought nine times out of 10, what they were doing was just kind of invasive and making kids afraid and harming family relationships and things like having to check children's bodies without a warrant, even if their allegation didn't have to do with physical or sexual abuse, really, really frustrated a lot of the caseworkers I talked to. Yeah, you describe how on most home visits, the caseworkers would, you know, they'd ask the kids to pull down their pants, you know, they keep their underwear on, but, you know, pull up their shirt and see if they're abused and how uncomfortable it was for everyone. And that detail really stood out to me. It really is, it's affecting the kids' bodily autonomy. Right, exactly. Yeah. And they, and again, they do this whether or not there's an allegation of any kind of physical or sexual abuse, um, according to our reporting. It really is an invasion of, of children's privacy, not just parents. I think um, it's easy to read about this stuff and think that we're talking about parents' rights to say no to letting um, investigators in. But children have protected Fourth Amendment rights as well to their bodily autonomy, to not being seized by government agents without a 
court order and, and those types of right. And, you know, their rooms being searched, a lot of kids feel that their rooms are a very special place or a very private place. So, we, you know, we talked to a number of children as well who found these searches very invasive. Now, obviously, in those relatively rare cases where abuse is happening, some of this stuff is necessary. So that's the that's the balance that has to be drawn. But in the overwhelming majority of cases, that abuse is not happening and children to see it as an invasion of, of their lives. Part of the issue here is mandatory responses. A lot of states have reporting laws that require teachers, doctors, and a whole lot of other people to report when they suspect abuse has occurred. The penalties for not reporting are steep, so it's in your best interest to say something, even if you're unsure of what you are seeing. That means Child Protective Services gets a lot of reports that turn out to be nothing. The same is true with tips to abuse hotlines. A lot of states require agents to investigate any tips that come in, even if they seem bogus. So another one of the investigations that ProPublica and NBC News published last week was about all of the calls that come in to these hotlines about possible child maltreatment. And some of the officials who we talked to said that absolutely this number of calls that they're having to investigate and this number of cases that they're having to do a home search in and, and everything is taking up resources. It's preventing them from finding the most serious cases it's not efficient, as you say. So there absolutely are officials who actually run these systems who say that there could be a better approach where fewer calls come in. People who make these calls are better trained in terms of when something might actually be abuse versus when they don't need to make a call. And then to have better systems of screening the calls so that some cases are diverted to kind of another track where services are provided to the family instead of an investigative approach. So I think that's something that a lot of agencies are actually trying to do. I want to talk about some solutions that you considered as you did your research. Because if you look back at what happened with Renisha Ferguson, the woman who recorded her interaction with the police and child welfare, it's so clear how pushing back on the system as an individual is not feasible at all. It does not work. You reported that in Connecticut, they've taken a very basic step. Like they've made it so that child welfare, when they come to your door, agents actively tell you, you don't have to let us in. How does that work? So in many places across the country, advocates for families have started to borrow concepts from the policing system, such as the Miranda warning, which most people have heard on their favorite cop show, you know, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you. You have the right to an attorney, all that, all that type of stuff. They've kind of borrowed that idea of making the government agents tell you your rights verbally, in part to show how similar policing and child welfare investigations are and to kind of draw that parallel more d- directly, but also just to inform people of these basic rights. I don't, I don't think as many people know that they have constitutional rights in a child welfare investigation as they do um, when the police are investigating them, which they might know from from their favorite cop show. Uh, And so that concept of giving a quote unquote Miranda warning and saying, you know, you have a right to an attorney, you don't have to say anything to us, you don't have to let us into your home, has been gaining traction. They're already doing a version of that in Connecticut, as you mentioned, and in New York City that they've proposed doing that. And there's legislation that's going to be introduced in the coming year to do that. But you say child welfare officials in New York have pushed back against this. What's their reasoning? 
they've given a couple of rationales for pushing back against that that policy. One is that they acknowledge that most cases are actually, you know, end up not going to court or, or unfounded. So they, they say, why why make this more legally formal than it needs to be when we could probably just close out the investigation or address it with services to the family? Whereas they say, if if you kind of give this legalistic warning, it would escalate the case and get lawyers and courts involved. And why do that when we, we might just be closing out the case anyway? So that's one thing that they've argued in memos opposing the policy and, and so forth. Um, another thing they've argued is that it would make the caseworker and parent relationship more adversarial. They see it as like a social work relationship where the caseworker is working with the parent to address the problems. Is that how the families see it? That is not how the families see it, no. And we spoke to a lot of families, a lot of judges, family court judges. They all said that this situation is inherently adversarial and to suggest otherwise is very misleading. Um, that These are government investigators coming to your home, accusing you of being a bad parent and having the power to take your children. That is very much an adversarial relationship already, no matter what the agency would like to see it as. And in Connecticut, do they feel like they're not able to do their jobs because they're warning people that, you know, they don't have to come in? No, in fact, the opposite. We interviewed Connecticut officials and they say that they've been getting more information from families since implementing this policy. Their thought about why that's true is that families feel more comfortable. They feel like their rights are being respected. They feel like there's more transparency in the interaction and therefore the child welfare workers are actually getting more information from the parents rather than having kind of a closed off, fearful conversation. And there's been no effect on child safety by informing people of their rights. Wow. So for the kids who get caught up in these knocks at the door from child welfare agents, what do we know about how they're impacted? Not just with a visit, but later, too. Well, one thing that was interesting that we heard a lot, both from kids and from parents and from advocates for families, was that it it changes the feeling that you have in your home. You know, kids think of home as a safe place where they can retreat to after a bad day at school and they can have a private life. But this feeling of these strangers with badges coming into their home at all hours of the day and night, um, it really reduces that sense of privacy that they feel that they have at home. And the other thing that it affects is their relationship with their parents. Kids, to some extent, see their parents become kind of second-class citizens in front of their eyes. It's something that really negatively impacts their view of their parents and their relationship with their parents um, and their feeling of safety in their home. Eli Hager, I'm I'm really grateful for your reporting. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Eli Hager is a reporter covering issues affecting children and teens in the Southwest. He works at ProPublica. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Delshad, Madeline Ducharme, And for her last episode, Mary Wilson. Mary, or as I like to call her, the other Mary, is our founding producer. Her deft editorial hand has been guiding this show 
from the very beginning. Literally, she hired me. And I've spent the last four years in her debt because of that. If I'm What Next's mom, Mary Wilson is What Next's midwife. She made the show smarter. She made me smarter, too. And if you've heard Mary Wilson guest host, you know what a true partner she is and how fantastically talented. Mary, keep shining. All right. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. We are getting a ton of support right now from Jared Downing and Anna Phillips. And I, I'm the remaining Mary, Mary Harris. I'm handing the keys over to Lizzie O'Leary. She's going to be here with What Next TBD tomorrow and through the weekend. And I will catch you back here on Monday.